Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. I'm Francis Lombard. In this episode, Marvel's executive editor, Tom Brevoort, and I discuss the genesis, execution, and response to, to two unique Marvel series, Avengers Beyond and Namor, Conquered Shores. As the conversation goes on, Tom also explains why Marvel's two-in-one and team-up series might not work in today's market. We also talk about the unique campaign to save Spider-Girl that her extraordinary fans managed to pull off years ago. FYI, Portrait of an Editor has a Patreon page. For a buck a month, you can get all the interviews that go all the way back to 2017. Now, here's my conversation with Tom. Enjoy. So, Tom, welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. First, it's I'd like to apologize to you and to everybody with my allergies really kicking in. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice uh, for the few listeners I have out there, but um, I'm wheezing and sort of congested right now, so I might have to pause and just blow my nose, but we'll... We'll carry on. But it's been, uh, I think, two years since we last uh, talked, and thank you for coming on on your Sunday afternoon, Tom. And I just want to really get specific for the reason why I reached out to you. I wanted to talk about All Out Adventures and Namor the Conquered Shores just because of your role, especially I read you know, some stuff about All Out Adventures and where the genesis of that. But sure. also, last time we talked, we touched upon... Um, some of the issues I had read during Dr. Doom where Christopher Cantwell had written that and it seemed to really reveal something about the character of an anti-hero, uh, you know, and Doom and just sort of his weaknesses, his clicks. I just really liked what he did and how he exposed those. And so I was like, when I heard the announcement of Namor conquered shores and it was Christopher doing it and he seemed really excited about it. The stuff I had read that it was like a lifelong project, um, I was like, okay, I'm getting this. And it was, what, five issues? Um, yes. I thought it was going to be longer, uh, but um, can you, I mean, let's start with that, because that seems to have started from from what I read um, as, you know, just a, a fan and just reading what's out there on the news, that it started with him. And the timing, of course, with Namor showing up in uh, Black Panther 2 and stuff like that. So there's this cross-marketing, of course. But for me... I don't read a lot of mainstream heroes books nowadays. It's just something that really grabs me or something like the concept, like the two books we're talking yep. about. Yep. So I'm like, I'm going to get this because I enjoyed Dr. Doom and then Conquered Chores. And Namor is one of those characters too, who's this anti-hero who's, we all know anybody who knows him, you know, he wants to destroy humanity. He's in love with the invisible woman. He wants to save humanity and he's just conflicted, which is great. Uh, the level of complexity is awesome. I'm not telling you anything you don't know already. <laughs> but, right, right. So, um, you know, where did, you know, how did that start from your point of view? Did Christopher come to you with the idea and sort of, you know, he already obviously proven that he could handle a villain with Dr. Doom. So w- w- how did things start? Yeah, it, it all, uh, that project started completely with him. Uh, you know, we were, we were wrapping up Iron Man, his run on Iron Man. And at some point, uh, you know, he said, I have this idea for for a Namor story I want to do. And, you know, he gave me a very basic, you know, three-line rundown of what he had in mind. And I told him, that sounds interesting to me. I knew at that point Namor was going to be in uh, uh, Black Panther 2. 
Uh, and so, uh, you know, like you said earlier, there was a, a good synergistic reason to maybe do a Namor project. Uh, and so, you know, I told him, you know, write up, a, write up a document, write up a, write up a real pitch, uh, and he did. And then we made it a comic. I mean, it wasn't a terribly complicated thing. Uh, it was, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. And did you worry about continuity at all, seeing you're dealing with a, a you know, a storyline that takes place? almost 100 years in the future or something, you know, pretty far in the future. Was well, there at a conversation at all? Well, it takes place in the future. So in essence, its continuity is its own. Yeah. Because it talks about things that haven't happened yet and that most likely will never happen because that's the way any future story kind of operates. It sits by itself, you know, and, and uh, that meant that you didn't really have to worry about what anybody else was doing anywhere else with any of the characters and you could just tell your story on this on this tapestry mm -hmm. now did you was there any anything that you had to work or massage with his pitch to um, make it work you know for your bosses on you know lining it up with you know the the synergy of what's going on with you know uh, the studio in, in California yeah, no, no, there wasn't anything particular there. Again, especially because it was set in the future, it was sort of its own entity. Um, and and uh, uh, you know, the most I I had to do was you know we had a conversation about like the inciting incident of things, um, because clearly, uh, Concord Shores is a is a global warming parallel. It's it's metaphorically that's what it's about. If you don't fix this this problem, the seas are going to rise, the oceans are going to overwhelm everything, and and humanity is going to be screwed. Um, but in terms of 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 doing that, you want to do it in a metaphoric Marvel Comics way. So it winds up in Concord Shores that that's the after effect of a a battle with the Kree. And something that was was more uh, directed than than haphazard, uh, and that was really just to to you know keep it from being, you know, a, so one to one on the on the head that, you know, the 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 essence of it would not communicate to people because their 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 backs would be up. Those who who don't want to buy into the notion of climate change for one reason or another would just they'd be focused on. You know, whatever the politics of the thing, rather than the story of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so you know, we made sure to massage that so that, you know, hopefully, because it's all being done through metaphor, it's a it's a non-issue. You can't kind of can't argue with that there was a Cree weapon and it caused this to happen. Whether you uh, you know agree with climate change or not, that's a that's an outside force that still gets you to the same place, uh, and it, it it makes everything work. Mm -hmm. And. Going with that with people who the challenge of, you know, climate change and rising sea levels, you know, Namor is a character who is conflicted, too. You know, reading this, there seems to be this him trying to make up for the mistakes he made in his past, how he was wrong at times. It really feels like. I mean, overall, that the series is a character and a lot of everybody trying to make up for something that they thought they were right at that moment, but now they find out as time passes that they were wrong. 
about sure. things. You know, and I think that's I mean, I think that's a that's a fairly typical sort of thing. Like we I, I can't speak for Chris. You know, I I look at this very much as this is sort of a Dark Knight Returns Submariner story. Hmm. It's a story about a character in his twilight years who's gone through all of these experiences uh, and is now changed by them. And I liked the fact that in this story, you kind of flip the the paradigm of the character on its head. That, uh, you know, typically when push comes to shove with Namor, he's about protecting the ocean and protecting his people, the Atlanteans, from the the the, the problems and, and, and horrors and, and such that are that are uh, uh, you know thrust upon them from the surface people who are the other half of Namor's heritage. And here the situation is flopped. The Atlanteans and the undersea civilization is ascendant. It, their territory is everywhere. What's left of humanity is essentially in 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 preserves and and uh, you know scraping over the little bits of land that are left. And consequently, Namor has had to sort of adjust his thinking to this new world. Uh, and and uh, since he's no longer uh, the king, but has stepped down. And uh, you know his uh, his cousin Namorita is 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 running the place and so forth, kind of carrying on philosophically in the manner he had when he was younger. He needs to reassess his own uh, uh, points of view on these things, and and you know de- you know determine what what he thinks is right and take action as he needs to. To, to try to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. It sounded like what you were just saying earlier, that the book came together really well. And it was just, you were happy with his, you know, the pitch that Christopher pro- provided, and you decided you got a green light and you moved forward on it. So was there any elements about it that were unique for that book as for you as an editor? Or was it just something, you know, okay, we we have this future story, we're in a bubble, and let's just move forward on the execution. Was there? Yeah, again, I wish there were more interesting wrinkles and things <laughs> that I could tell you about, but there really, there weren't. I mean, the most that there there were were things like, you know, Chris asking at a certain point, "Hey, can I use the Frankenstein monster?" and be having to double check with our legal department, you know, that we were clear to use that that uh, that expression of that character in this way. Um, because obviously there's a lot of Frankenstein stuff out in the world and the question of how much legally, you know, what's legally distinct about Marvel's uh, Frankenstein monster versus everybody else's. Um, but that wasn't, you know, that was a day's conversation. That was 20 minutes. It was, uh, it was interesting seeing him there. I was like, wait, I know there's a DC version of Frankenstein's monster and the character obviously is in public domain. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, there's... The yeah, yeah. Frankenstein. The book is in public domain. Yeah, and you know, Marvel. You know, Marvel did Frankenstein back in the '70s as part of the the monster line of, of books, mm-hmm. Monster of Frankenstein and and Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night and all, all the monster titles of that era. Yeah. So uh, you know, we'd seen him a couple of times over the years since then. He was in an Iron Man two-parter and a couple of other things. Um, and and you know Chris had a had a desire to write that version of the character, and it was another uh, he was another artificial being. So he sort of connected with the the machine man and the the original Human Torch and and that whole that whole thread of of the story. So 
uh, you know, turned out he could do it. So that, that worked out. All right. Mm, that's yeah. I didn't even realize. Yeah, you're right. He is a created being you know, and yes. you have these other characters in this and it's sort of, you know, the things that humans do still linger on the planet, which mm-hmm. was interesting. Um, what did you guys, so it came together pretty well, went out there. What did you think of the, the reception of the series? And I, I don't know anything about, you know, I just, I enjoyed it. I just read it again before coming on. And I just like, there's a lot of great things going on. It, 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 for me, it's like it delivered exactly what Christopher was talking about mm-hmm. when I first inter- you know, did the interview. And I'm like, I like this world. I would like to see what happens, you know, and how this character, how Namor continues with something, you know. Right, right. Well, uh, again, thank you. I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, the only way I can describe it is it sold the way Namor projects usually sell, <laughs> which, which is to say, it was not. It, it did not set the world on fire. Um, you know, it did perfectly well. It, 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 you know, it, it made its margin or or whatever. But uh, it was not such a landslide thing that you know we're suddenly rushing to do seven other Conquer Chores projects or anything. Well, what do you personally think of Namor? Because I remember I was a big fan of the John Byrne run. That's mm-hmm. really, and I, you know, being some, you know, he's part of the Fantastic Four universe, basically, and I right. know him from that times and that whole conflict and his also his connection with the Invisible Woman. I mean, what do you think of Namor personally as a... a I, um, and some of this has to do with how I encountered the character, no doubt. But I like the early 1940s Namor a bunch. And I think that the problem that that character has had since the 60s, in one way or another, boils down to the fact that Stan Lee really liked the idea of superheroes as kings. Mm. And, and he did a lot of them. You know, Black Bolt was a king, and the Black Panther was a king, and... And, and Namor was a king. Like, in all the early stories, when he would fight the Fantastic Four, he was a man without a home. He was, he'd been amnesiac in the, in the Bowery, and the torch finds him, and he discovers that, you know, underwater atomic tests have blown up his civilization. And so he declares war on the surface world and eventually finds little pockets of his people and eventually gets to the point where he's going to have a strip again in, in Tales to Astonish. And at that point, it's just... Put him on a throne, make mm-hmm. him a king, and as soon as you do that, to me, he kind of loses agency. Ironically enough, he stops being interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm a, like I say, I'm a big proponent of the early, you know, 1939, 1940s Bill Everett Namor, who was, you know, very young, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who was almost effectively like a teenage character. He was 18, 19 years old. Uh, he was the one the one guy who sat between those two civilizations. He'd come up to the surface and cause trouble um, in, in almost a King Kong sort of way. But he also was generally a pretty good dude and would generally help out when, when, when problems showed up. Uh, and, and he was just sort of a firecracker. He was not a, a, an authority character. He was an anti-establishment character. And 
once you put him on the throne, again, it's sort of like the difference between Conan and King Conan. The problem King Conan has is he's bored and he wants to go back to like <laughs> running around with a sword and, and pillaging stuff, but he can't and he doesn't have to because now he's got to do all the boring paperwork of, of being a king. And that's sort of the difficulty that most of the Stanley, uh, you know, emperor heroes run into. You inevitably wind up with these, these this sort of similarity of story, which boils down to somebody else wants to be king, usually the same guy, and and your hero has to like put down the uprising, or be thrown off the, the throne, or in exile, and have to come back, or have to go on a quest to prove his uh, 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 worthiness of of the title, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um. So I feel like. Um, this more than anything, I think, is one of the reasons why Neymar stopped being a headliner. You know, that after you get to 1974 or so, mm-hmm. you know, again, John, the John Byrne series did 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 pretty well. You know, and John and after him, you know, ran some 50 50 something issues, 60 yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, and that was you know very deliberately John going, let's put him somewhere else. We'll put him in charge of a of a multinational corporation, and that'll that'll be the the shtick that carries him forward, and that'll let him interact with the human world and the other Marvel stuff uh, a little more readily. But even that, you know, kind of got phased out after about 25 or 30 issues. Um, Namor has just not been able to sustain as a as a lead character, as a headline character, in the way he was able to in the past. And I think a lot of it has to do with he's trapped in that. Uh, sinkhole of, of a situation where he, you know, he's 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 gotten too old. He can't be a young firebrand anymore because he's grown up and you know got responsibility now. And even if you take that away from him, he's still gone through those experiences. And so, uh, you know, it's difficult to kind of get back to the essence of of what that character was when he was the most successful. And I remember a couple times in this in the miniseries that he even reminds people like I'm not in charge anymore. <laughs> He's yeah. trying, like I'm not doing this. You right. Know, like you know, so you don't have to worry about me dealing, you know, coming at you with this kind of uh point of view you know and he's like remember i'm not i'm not making those decisions anymore so well i'll be you know i enjoyed it i'm curious to see if you know whatever happens um if christopher ends up writing him again because it sounded like namor was an interesting character you know something that he was happy to be able to have this opportunity sure sure and, and, and yeah that that all having been said it was built to be a story a five issue story yeah. beginning middle end and so if there is absolutely no more you know, we went out and did the story that we'd intended to do. So it wasn't really intended to be a whole mm-hmm. cycle of stories. There's always the possibility of something successful of doing more or doing another one. But, uh, you know, it, it kind of is the thing that it is. Yeah, which is great because it's something I can come back to. And it's the thing, you know, not have to worry about just getting the monthly comics. I just can't keep up that pace anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Let's switch to uh, something regarding pace and keeping up that pace because really that's what it's about. You know, all out. I mean, um, all out Avengers, which becomes Avengers Beyond, but the concept of that, which appealed to me, I'm a pretty much a collector. Started getting into comics in the '80s, and mm-hmm. so there were still spinner racks. I would, you know, camp out at a couple of different, you know, local convenience stores owned by individuals. They weren't even chain stores. They was, you know, they had 
you know, and, you know, harass the people putting out the magazines and still not get the issue that I was hoping to get. Uh, I just, when I first heard about this, and I also, you know, the, the editorial you wrote at the end of issue one, you know, reinforced it, is that trying to capture that experience again. And that was the hook that got me to, like, mm -hmm. give you guys my money. Um, did you, what do you feel about it? I mean, now they, it's sort of changed gears now. It ran five issues with that approach, which you, you were, it was working for me. And it was like, right. you know. It's, and it's, 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 it hasn't abandoned that approach going into beyond, but it turns out it's harder to get people on board with a book like that than you might think. Mm. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, rebranding it and restarting as Avengers Beyond I mean, if I'm if I'm completely honest about it, you know, that was a fairly last minute marketing move. And in fact, you know, what, what you read as Avengers Beyond number one was written as all out Avengers number six. Yeah, because but, you were far ahead, like when in the editorial. Yeah, it, it, there, there wasn't really there was a little bit of nip and tuck. Um, that that all out Avengers five originally didn't end with the reveal of the Beyonder. That would have happened in in six. Uh, and so when we moved to make that pivot, we changed the end of five and did the reveal there. And then we're able to open and go into six and not hide the Beyonder uh, and, and get to him, you know, more overtly, put him on the cover and so forth. And hopefully attract enough additional eyeballs there and enough interest that, oh, there's something going on here with a character that you maybe you're interested in to, to get people to, to show up and, and take a look. Mm. Now, it, this idea came from you and... Uh, am I correct on that? From what sort, I sort sort of, sort of, um, you know. And again, I don't know how. I don't remember how deeply I got into it on that text page because I wrote that <laughs> in about 20, 20 seconds. But um, you're you talking know, it, about you were sort of influenced by hearing the idea of all out Spider Man. It, yeah, it was. It was Nicklo was going to do nonstop Spider Man. Yeah. Uh, and 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 he did, you know. They he put that book together, him and Joe Kelly and and Chris Pacello. Um and and I, you know, read the first issue or two, and I remember thinking to myself, "There's too much plot here. There's too much plot at the front, you know." That the premise of the book is it's it's nonstop Spider-Man. And granted, at the beginning of that book, Spider-Man's in the middle of a of a chase across town and and, and so forth. But I remember feeling like. You know, it, it felt like any other issue of any other book to me. Uh, I didn't feel like what I thought it was going to be yep. when it was described to me. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, Nick and, and Joe and, and Chris or anything did it wrong. It's just there was my impression of what I thought it mm -hmm. would be like versus what it was actually like. And so I kind of went back and said, well, I could just make the book that I thought it was going to be like, and that will be all out Avengers. Um, because that appealed to me, you know, as, as I've said in the text page, I believe, you know, when I was, I, I started reading comics earlier than you. I started in the 70s. Uh, and in those days, um, you know, you mostly had, uh, you know, like you say, spinner racks and, and, you know, little mom and pop candy stores and, and uh, you know, comics and drug stores and whatnot. And, and you could never entirely be certain that you would get two subsequent issues in a row yep um also marvel had a full line of reprint titles at the same time that they were publishing their main books and so 
you know, you might pick up an issue of Avengers and then you might pick up an issue of Marvel Triple Action that had some old issue of Avengers in it. Uh, and so more often than not, as I came into books or I got, was able to get my hands on random issues of whatever, I'd be starting stories in the middle. Like your splash page would be, you know, the 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 the, uh, the, the, the cliche that I keep using for, you know, Captain America being thrown into a volcano. And you wouldn't, and, and there was also a thing that you wouldn't know that that issue in Marvel Triple Action had been put, written ten years ago. It yeah, was not brand spanking new to you. I mean, for me, because right. I got Marvel Tales was one of the first things. I'm like, oh, this stuff's great. I didn't even know. I have a clue for the longest time that this had already been published and and everything. But right, it right. was like my first comic book, for one of the few first new comic books for me. But it was all right. Like that. So there's part of that experience that's really about feeling like, you know, you immediately have to catch up, but you, you're careening at 100 miles an hour kind of from the very first page. Uh, and I read a lot of comics where I ended up reading the second part of stories first, and then I would read the first parts and kind of go, this is not as good because ultimately I know where it's going and, and uh, you know, I, I almost don't need this first part at this point. You know, you mm-hmm. gave me the second part. You started Caps going to the volcano. You gave me two panels of flashback showing who threw him in, and now he's getting out of it, and now he's going to fight whatever because the action is – the plot's already going. The action is already happening, and you don't have to, you know, sort of do any setup or any preamble. You're right in it. Um, so to me, you know, that was most of my – most of my 10-year-old reading experiences were, were, were that. Uh, and so that was kind of the notion behind doing All Out Avengers. Uh, and I, you know, I kicked that idea to Derek Landy. Um, and, and Derek came back uh, you know, having improved on it, you know, which oh. is to say, you know, what he came up with was, yeah, okay, we do this, but there's an overarching story, and it's this and here's how this all works. And here's how these individual crazy throwaway stories actually tie in and connect to one another and the, the bigger thing that's going on here. Uh, and that really, more than anything, was the thing that solidified it as a, as a project, as a series. So it wasn't just, well, there's a Doctor Doom story and then there's a Red Skull story and they don't really have anything to do with one another. There is something... Uh, additive and larger that's going on that involves the beyonder which we can now say and and uh you know that that leads you to that point and all through the the series you know uh, uh derek has been very uh forthcoming in having different characters in the midst of things kind of going wait a minute how how did we get here what's going on wait don't like i remember all this stuff and yet something seems to be a little bit off so there is a running mystery element. Now, did that when he came in with that extra layer? Did that make you stop and think about for a little while of like, is this does this take this beyond what I really was hoping for the experience? Because it sounds like this book is it's an interesting comic because you're going for a nostalgic experience, but also an experience of being right there in the action in the in the middle of the action in Medius Race. And just moving, and just moving, and not right, you right. get your answers somewhere down the line, but not, you know, in the first six pages, you have you know everybody's name and superhero name and powers. You, right. you you get it at the end, or maybe not. You just eventually just get on the ride and go. Did you have to stop and think about this? Is this going to sort of 
collapse things by with that overarching. I mean, I, I, I mean, I thought about it, but I don't think it. You know, I, I think it worked in the service of creating a framework for that that approach mm-hmm. that would be potentially satisfying to an audience. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing and it's a difficult thing. Um, our our readership today, partly because the books are so expensive, um, you know, they want to feel like every everything matters, and matters is an intangible, yeah. uh, uh, you know, quantifier. That that uh, you know, it's somehow not always enough to have given you ten to twenty minutes of entertainment. Whatever that investment of time and, and money that somebody's put in, they want to feel like it's gonna it's gonna grow in value. It's gonna it's gonna accrue interest as you know further days go on. So it's not just a throwaway. This is the reason more than anything else why books like the old Marvel Team Up or Marvel Two in One or Brave and Bold don't work anymore because people you know it's not satisfying enough to go oh it's the thing and ghost rider and they're having an adventure and it's 20 pages and it's over and then next month the thing will have another adventure with shang chi and it'll you know it'll be fine they feel like well i i want that to to count i want it to matter i want it to and and so i'll I'll tell you i'm sorry to interrupt but i'll tell you right now i would buy those books because that's I, I they matter to me. I that's the thing that I think that nailed me into comics was the things Marvel two and one the Pegasus project. Mm-hmm. So even though that has an overarching story, I didn't realize it was an overarching story when I first started reading it. But Spider Man team up and Marvel two and one and even Marvel supervillains, what I, the older stuff I read. Yep. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I guess I'm the minority. <laughs> I'll just confess that right now. Right. Well, so. there's. I mean, there. there yeah. There. There are. There are definitely fans like yourself. And there are others that are like you, but the, yeah. the Venn diagram yeah. of it all is that that it's much di- more difficult mm-hmm. to sell up to sell a book that's that 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 wears its disposability on its sleeve in that way. Yeah, I see. Um, you know, and and so, you know, like the difference between buying an issue of Amazing Spider-Man and an issue of Marvel Team Up is, well, in Marvel Team Up you get this other hero in Amazing Spider-Man. Whatever he's dealing with may actually matter three months from now when you're faced with that choice again. Um, and, and, and so for some, you know, one is better than the other or more attractive than the other. And for some, the opposite. Mm-hmm. And more, more readers these days tend to gravitate towards the question of it, it counts, it matters. Um, and so that's a, that's a factor. And so, you know, Derek coming up with a, with a super story that, that connected all of these things, but still allowed you to have big, crazy adventures. Because the other thing about all out Avengers um, and, and nonstop Spider-Man for that matter, um, were they were designed to be action comics. Mm-hmm. They were designed to be comics that weren't about characters standing in rooms and having weighty, you know, meaningful, uh, deep philosophical discussions or conversations or interactions um, they were about superheroes punching and hitting things. <laughs> Which, and now that you talk about it, it reminds me of the widescreen like appeal of the authority. You know, the first twelve issues that Hitch and Ellis did. Sure. That sure. huge, you know, as they say, widescreen, which I guess is a term that sort of disappeared, but it is that thing of just jumping right into having, you know, the writing and the art be as just as big as the stories and being able to carry a scale mm-hmm. that 
um, I can see all out Avengers or Avengers Beyond now has that scale because of what you can just bring right in at the, from the get go. Yeah, it's it's also just the ethos of the book. Like mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily complaining about the state of other other comics. And I no, don't necessarily no. feel that every comic should be like this, but in general, as our medium has become more sophisticated and allowed to do more stories that are aimed at an adult sensibility, we've sort of moved away from the, the, the visual spectacle that used to be a hallmark of what Marvel comics were. And, and that's the thing. That's the thing, like, with comics until movie special effects caught up with being able to pull off the, <coughs> the bombastic huge element, comics owned that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, you know, Jack Kirby, you know, whatever, you right, know, right. you could go to this amazing scale and all you needed was the put, you know, the reader just needed the push of the creators and then their mind could take off and go in, go, you know, go run with it. And that's great that this is sort of hard, you know, taking advantage of what the medium was really capable and owned for the longest time until or at least at least trying to, you know, yeah. that, at least that's the, you know, was some of the intent. Um, you know, and whether you know whether or not or how well we succeeded or how well it worked for the audience that was there and whether or not it was as appealing to that audience as some other comic, those are all questions that the marketplace dictates. So as you as a person who started it off and then ended up watching it evolve, I mean, how do you feel about the end results of where things are right now? You're looking at, I think, issue number three is being solicited or um, number two is about to come out. Avengers Beyond number two. Right, right. I mean, where, where, how is your, the concept you started the ball rolling? How do you feel it's evolving and shaping up to, you know, when you first started out? Um, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the actual, you know, content with the guts of the, of the book. I wish there was a bigger audience because that would have meant that we didn't have to pivot in the middle of this thing and, and relaunch in, you know what is quite frankly a relatively artificial fashion in mm. order to, to to make sure that that uh, we were getting into enough hands to uh you know to, to to make the 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 financial nut that we needed to make in order to to do the book in the first place so yeah but that's like like anything you put you you, you come up with ideas you put ideas out into the world and they either succeed or fail and you can do everything right and still have a thing that doesn't work and you can do seven things wrong but one thing is something that speaks to the audience and it works uh you know there's no it's not uh it's not science it's alchemy and it doesn't always work the same way one and one doesn't always equal two in in what we do sometimes it equals three and sometimes it equals one and a half and sometimes it equals r um you know and and so you just you know by by instinct and experience and, and and so forth you just you know keep keep uh keep throwing ideas at the at the wall and keep trying different things and the ones that work you know great they work and they're successful and they go on and the ones that don't you know, go away after a while and you try something else and maybe that one works better. Um, that's just the natural churn of things. Now, seeing we've been talking about like what, you know, the audience is nowadays and what works for them and what an audience is looking for. Do you feel that this book just needs some time to get some traction or, 
uh, you know, what is the situation where, you know, what is, the, how do you, you look at books that are out there that, um, you know, they need, say, a year to, to have people get on board, you know, because word of mouth is still as good. I mean, how, or do, you know, has that evolved? I've I don't think, I mean, again, the, the, this is a thing that, that gets talked about a lot by creators, sometimes by fans who have titles that are going away that they loved or whatnot. And, oh, if only they'd kept it around for a little longer, it could find its audience. Mm -hmm. In my experience in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, um, there are no books that found an audience. You know, you either had an audience, you were able to get an audience and build that audience as you went. Or, or you didn't, and it's consistent, particularly when you look at things across platform. You know, comics that sell well is in periodical also tend to sell well digitally and sell well as collected editions, trade paperbacks, hardcovers, and whatnot. And comics that sell less well tend to do the same thing in all of those areas. And all what all of that what that really means is you're not whatever you're doing, however you're expressing it. You're not connecting with enough people and convincing them to be able to to, to, to want to give up their time and money uh, to, to to follow your your book, uh, and so more time uh, doesn't seem to be the cure to that because it okay. doesn't matter if your book runs for three issues or five issues or seven issues or twelve issues. The only thing that matters past a certain point is how much money are you going to lose. I've never known a series. Uh, you know, to run 15 issues and then suddenly with issue 16, it skyrockets, <laughs> you know, other than in instances where at that point you've thrown everything out. New new creative team, new concept, new, yeah. new thing, at which point it's effectively a new book. Yeah, because I can hear people uh, listening to this podcast, well, well, what about Swamp Thing or what about, you know, even Spider, right. Spider Girl or, you know, they'll say, but... No, you're right. They basically restarted, you know, Swamp Thing that you all, everybody flocked to wasn't the same Swamp Thing that I started yes. reading at issue one. And then Alan Moore comes on. I'm like, what is this? You know, right, you right. know, there was a definite change and and other things. And there, you know, there are, you know, I think Spider Girl hung in there, but that was because she acquired an audience that was extremely, you know, passionate about that character and managed to save her a number of times, too. So. Right, and it wasn't. I mean, again, even at its best, it wasn't an overwhelming, enormous audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, which is the reason why that book kept getting canceled every yeah. six to twelve <laughs> issues. But it was a dedicated enough audience that every time the numbers took that dip, they were able to be activists enough through all of their efforts to get them back up again, <laughs> to a point where oh, okay, we we this is still profitable. We can do some more, and then they would relax. And the numbers, because the num right? Because the numbers typically, you know, will on any book will decay in an almost standard arc. Mm -hmm. You know that if you're a if you're a comic shop owner, you know it's almost like a mathematical formula, and it's not as quite as simple as this. But if you if you order ten copies of issue one, you're going to order five copies of issue two, and you're going to maybe order four copies of issue three, and and so on and so on. Like there's a standard attrition rate. Uh, at least across the industry. Not every shop will do it the same way. Some books will sell in certain stores or certain regions, but not in others. But in aggregate, overall, that tends to be the thing. And with Spider-Girl readers, they were dedicated enough 
and 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 activist enough in a proper way. Like I've seen other, uh, you know, fan campaigns to save books before over the years, and all the, they've really amounted to is effectively petition gathering, which mm-hmm. is not which is not nothing. But it's the least amount of effort you could possibly put into something. It's very easy for me to sign a petition sitting here. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to go, oh, well, they're, they're now continuing the book. I will go out and buy, put my money down, journey yeah. to where it can be had, and put my money down to buy this. And the thing that the Spider-Girl uh, uh, fans did, and did it repeatedly and consistently, were they were able to move the needle uh, you know, the, the actual say, whether that meant they were all going and buying 100 copies each or or whatever, they were able to, to get that that uh, that curve to turn around and turn around sharply enough that it made sense to then continue the book for another X number of, of months. And it's, you know, like that, there were, I think, uh, I haven't done the full math on it in a while because there were a couple of different series, but there were like 130 issues of Spider Girl. Yeah, it's like a character, which is pretty good. And it, and it was, you know, it was supposed to end with 12. So yeah. they they did it, and they did it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they did it more effectively than I've ever seen, you know, before or since. Nobody else has ever been as 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 clever and canny and dedicated in the right way. To saving a book like those Spider Girl fans, they they were extraordinary. So, I guess one last question: In your newsletter, you talk about developing series the way you developed All Out Avengers. You know, it, the springing from you, you know, or from editorial, and then going out to your creative creators and asking and trying to you know bring a team together. Doing a book like this that has a unique hook and everything. And looking back at its success, its failures, you know, its as it his, its history, has it changed how you might uh, develop new series, or did it give you any insight to your creative um, approach to getting books, uh, getting series is up and running, especially when it comes from editorial when they develop? No, them? I don't. I don't. Again, I don't think that that has anything to do with whether or not. You know, a particular project happened to to succeed or fail because mm-hmm. there have been projects that have been produced in either of those ways, and and projects that have been produced in other ways that have succeeded and failed just as readily. So, you know, I don't look at this and go, oh no, this this book didn't do what I wanted it to do. Therefore, my whole process is is inutterably flawed, and I never <laughs> again must must approach well, yeah. it, it this way. It's more. You know, again, it's luck of the draw. Every every year, how many, you know, particularly with streaming, how many TV shows are there mm-hmm. that come out? How many of them last the test of time and how many of them drop their eight episodes and then are never seen again? Yeah. You know, it's just everything is competing for, for time and attention. And that's just the reality of it. And, you know, I'm invested in all of the projects that we do and that I'm working on. But I'm also at a remove enough to go, well, okay, that one didn't work, and that one's ending, and that's sad, and those things are always sad, but something new will, will be able to begin, and that's, there's always potential in that. So that's, that's just the nature of, of things. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a solid state in mm-hmm. industry or situation. Um, and 
like I said earlier, you can do everything right and still not win. Um, so once you once you you know accept that, once you acknowledge that, you can't you know you can feel bad because you liked the thing you were working on or you liked the people you were working with on it. But you move on to the next thing. That's it, just the natural, you know, like a shark. You have to keep swimming. And it doesn't call for you to, like, oh, let me throw out my entire process, you know, and try something new. It doesn't call for that because. Right, right. I mean, there may be specific things, specific insights that you gain about how a particular thing was received. And that might impact on how you, you know, approach the next one, but only in a, in a, in a microcosm sort of way. You know, it's, it's really micro adjustments rather than macro at that part point because you're also extrapolating abstractly from inconclusive data mm-hmm. you know all you see is the result you know you don't have an insight into the mind of everybody who didn't read your comic <laughs> so you don't know what it was that made them not want to read it for some just the fact that it was an avengers comic maybe made them not want to read it for some maybe it was it's an avengers comic and there are two or three other avengers comics and they'd rather read those um you know it, it's any number of things it it could be i did they didn't like the color background co- color on that cover yeah. uh you know was it appealing like it it's it becomes so there there are so many variables that it's difficult to take any one lesson but in listening to the audience as as a group, you can kind of, you know, at least generally, kind of get a vector for what was going on, uh, and and what worked or, or what didn't, and that's the best you can you can do. Well, I will keep giving you my money for Avengers Beyond. Um, I'm having a lot of fun, and uh, well, thank you. The concept just got. You got the little kid in me all revved up again because, as they say, you know, comic book readers are always seem to be like trying to get get back to that like that moment where we first experienced the medium, you know. And yep. this book helps. So, um, excellent. Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate your support, and uh, you know, we'll 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 keep cracking on with it. So, thank you very much for coming on and uh, giving up your Sunday afternoon. I really appreciate it, and I'll be, you know, we'll we'll have to talk again. All right. Okay. Talk to you later. See you. Bye.